Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here today with Heather Cianci, a physical therapist and neurological outpatient team leader at the Dan Aaron Parkinson's Disease Rehabilitation Center, which is part of the Penn Therapy and Fitness in Philadelphia. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I really appreciate it. We've been excited and wanting to talk to you because you have a lot of interesting roles where you work. You've had a lot of interesting roles in your career, but specifically, you know, what we're going to be doing a deep dive into is kind of your unique Parkinson's programs that you guys have at your center. Um, We're trying to kind of do a series of these to highlight unique patient care models just so clinicians like myself in an outpatient clinic can get an idea of what maybe some other opportunities are and where things look uh, different parts of the country. But just to get started, let's, um, we'd love to know a little bit more about you, if you can share a bit about yourself. Sure thing. So I have been a physical therapist now for 27 years. I started off a long time ago in acute care. I uh, knew that I really enjoyed working with geriatric and older clients And that sort of pushed me along the road into neurology. And I was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time when the outstanding physicians and wonderful support team of the University of Penn Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorder Center actually left where they were and came to our center. And we developed the Dan Aaron Parkinson's Rehab Center. We're now going on to our 21st year in existence. And we were really one of the first centers along the East Coast to really focus just on Parkinson's disease and other movement disorder centers. So it's a really wonderful place to be able to work with. And I'm really excited to tell you more about what our team provides. And so right now, kind of what's the mix of your role between maybe the clinic or teaching or other other hats that you're wearing during the week? Yeah, so I have this title of outpatient neurological team leader. And basically what that means is I help to lead the team of other outpatient physical therapists who work in neurology um, because we are part of Penn Therapy and Fitness. We have all sorts of different clinical centers. So there are different therapists who are not necessarily just working in Parkinson's disease, but there's many working in all sorts of different roles in brain injury, therapists who are working with vertigo. Um, We have people who specialize in stroke. So my job is to really kind of make sure that we're keeping up on clinical education, that we're doing proper documentation, that people are getting their needs met when they're finding out about what course is coming to town and how do we share this information with the rest of the team. And then my other role, really, I'm a full-time clinician. So I am treating patients all of the time in the clinic. And outside of the clinic itself, I also work for LSVT Global, and I also work for the Parkinson's Foundation. So I'm really steeped in Parkinson's disease and movement disorders. I can't help but ask, but like, how do you balance being kind of a full-time clinician with these other roles, which, you know, alone, they could take up a full-time job? Absolutely. I would be lying if I said it was easy. 
Um, sometimes are muchier than others. I think the camaraderie of the team that I work with helps. Um, I have excellent clinicians at the Parkinson's Rehab who I can delegate things to. I work from home on Mondays, so I use a lot of that time for my other activities with the Parkinson Foundation. And of course, during COVID, we have completely shifted to everything being virtual. So that actually does help us to kind of fill in the gaps. And I think thing that keeps me going is that I'm just really passionate about sharing this knowledge and ultimately helping these patients. So when I feel overwhelmed, and I think we all do in this career, and especially with those of us who are working in neuro, it can be very taxing. We take a lot of stuff home with us uh, mentally and emotionally. So I think you really need to rely on your team members. That's really what gets me through. So Heather, tell me a little bit about the different specialty clinics that you guys have. So at our center, not only do we treat patients clinically every day, we have a whole host of specialty clinics. Um, One of our biggest clinics that we have is our ALS clinic. Our second clinic is called COPE, and that stands for Comprehensive Outpatient Atypical Parkinsonism Evaluations, and that's why we call it COPE. Um, And in the COPE clinic, that's where we're dealing with people who have diseases such as progressive supranuclear palsy and Lewy body dementia. We also have a specialty clinic for Huntington's disease. And lastly, we have a clinic for deep brain stimulation. So that is for people who are contemplating going through the procedure of having the DBS and they meet with the different team members. And of course, rehab is part of that team. And so the clinicians that you work with, is everyone involved in these different clinics? So everybody in the rehab is involved. So we have physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech language pathology. But we also are a part of the movement disorder center that is housed in the same building with us. So part of that team also is the neurologist, the nurse specialist. Um, We have a psychiatrist. We have a palliative care neurologist, social work, nursing, and then medical assistance and also outside counseling services. So all of those clinicians come together in some way and somehow, and I can tell you a little bit more about that for each of these separate clinics on different days of the week. So I'm wondering if you are hired into your group, are you hired also into one of the clinics or do you just have rehab specialists that primarily just treat patients kind of outside of the clinic? So everyone who's hired within our clinic knows that there's the possibility of coverage for those clinics. But what we really try to do is find out what each other's love and passion is and where we have a special interest for, we come with more education about that. So I have always been Parkinson's. Parkinson's has been my whole bread and butter for my entire career after I moved to this clinic. So for me, it was an easy jump then to go into the atypical clinic because we were seeing so many of these patients as well. Mm -hmm. Now the Huntington's clinic was very new to us. We had an outside clinician join the practice. Many of us were not treating a lot of people with HD. So there was a lot of education involved for PT, OT, and speech. And that was sort of left up to, hey, who's interested in this? Who wants to take this forward and bring it to its fruition? Now, that being said, obviously, we have days off and people to cover those clinics. So all of us are cross-trained in that. But I will say that certain therapists do have more of a specialty in those particular Mm -hmm. diagnoses. And then... I'm sure there's some of us who would love to just be able to start something tomorrow. Yeah. But who's starting these clinics? You know, who's initiating 
you know, collecting the resources, collecting the group, you know, identifying the patient populations that are going to be best served by these types of resources. So for the DBS clinic, University of Penn was back in the research stage when DBS wasn't even, you know, FDA approved and happening. So they had been here through the start. So a lot of team was seeing people very early on. And through the therapies, we were kind of getting people later on in the course, much later after the DBS, and we were seeing problems. And it was through really just sheer luck of having wonderful communication with the physicians and with the nurses and everyone and saying, you know, these are some of the things that we're seeing was this discussed beforehand. We would have loved to have seen this person before they had DBS to maybe work on some certain things. And it was really through just coming together and talking about these things that the DBS clinic came about. ALS has been there since day one. We had a physician who specialized in that. Um, He has since left the practice, but hasn't taken over by another physician. That's just always been part of the services that we provided. As I mentioned before, HD was something that we did not work with. And we had a physician Mm -hmm. who came from University of Iowa, I believe, and started Mm -hmm. this program here. So that was new to us. Now, the COPE clinic for the atypical Parkinsonisms, what we were finding basically as a team was that we were seeing so many of these people because we are a specialty clinic and a lot of other places didn't know how to manage these cases for these patients. That Mm -hmm. in 2000, about 2009, 2010, we had a wonderful physician, Dr. Rachel Goldman Gross, and she was a fellow at the time. And she took on a real special interest in the cognitive aspect of the atypicals. Mm -hmm. She has since gone on after being a fellow and becoming a board certified movement disorder specialist, went back and got her PhD in psychiatry. So she has kind Hmm. of won the full gamut and she kind of really brought the team together and said, these patients are so challenging on so many levels and they are one of the conditions that we have the least amount of medications to really help. Mm -hmm. And it's therapy that plays the biggest role. You know, how can we make this work? So we really built that one from the ground up, made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot of things along the way. But I like to say now, even in the time of COVID, where sometimes we're virtual and sometimes we're in person, we're running like a pretty well-tuned machine. So I'm pretty proud of the team for that. So it sounds like of all the clinics, this is the one that you're most involved in. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's get into a little bit more detail because that is so unique, you know, across all these conditions, but particularly for patients with atypical Parkinson's, you know, as a solo physical therapist in an outpatient clinic, you, you can't help but try to take on the roles of social worker and neuropsychologist. And then you're trying to communicate with the movement disorder specialist. And you're really kind of that point person for kind of managing the and in the day to day. So it's wonderful to be able to talk to you with all this experience and how you guys have been able to optimize that model. And so let's maybe talk a little bit more about how that clinic works, the logistics of it, services you provide. And so we'll see what we can glean and take away. Absolutely. So the atypical clinic, which is called COPE, is run once a month. And in the past, it was a full day clinic. And when I say in the past, I mean pre-COVID. Um, we were able to get many more patients into the clinic for that. You have to understand what a challenge it is for these people because of the level of disability. And because we are in center city, Philadelphia, it's difficult for people to get to us. Um, So trying to arrange for that and get everybody in pre-COVID was was kind of challenging. And if something good did come out of 
COVID with this. It was the ability to then have telemedicine so that we could actually see more patients Mm -hmm. and get more people. Mm -hmm. So typically the way the clinic is run is that the patient meets with the neurologist, which is a movement disorder specialist. Mm -hmm. They are also by nursing. They are seen by social work and also the counselor sometimes. So sometimes the social worker might meet with the family members to talk about what kind of services do you need in the home? Are you in need of a home health aid? How are you doing financially? You know, what's the safety of the home like? As well mm-hmm. as we have a counselor who's also a social worker. They may meet separately just with the patient to talk to them about what are you feeling emotionally? You know, how is the relationship going at home? How are you feeling? What's your stress level like? So they meet with all of these folks. And it's recently that we've been so fortunate enough to actually have a neurologist who's also a palliative care specialist. Wow. And I think that a really big missing piece in this clinic. I think it's a big palliative care across the board is probably a big missing piece in a lot of places um, Mm -hmm. with these folks with the degenerative diseases. You know, how do we help them live this best quality of life in whatever Mm -hmm. time they have? And unfortunately, these folks with the atypicals, the lifespan is much shorter than someone who has Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. PT and OT do meet with the patient together. There's some overlap there. And instead of having the patient, you know, tell their history multiple times and things like that, we tag team together. And that makes for a really nice experience because there's a lot of times where I may be doing some functional testing with the patient and the family member is breaking down and sharing something with our occupational therapist. So mm-hmm. we really, we, we try to make sure that that family or that home health aide or whoever's really helping that patient is there because it's not helpful for that patient to come alone. Um, there's so much that they need to gather. It's, it's a busy day and it's a lot for people to take in. Uh, and then they also meet with the speech language pathologist. And then once everybody meets with that back in the old days, again, pre COVID, we would have rounds at the end of the day and everyone would talk about that patient, what they found, what their needs were. And I always found it amazing, Katie, that we all walked away with different pieces of information from that same patient. And so many Mm -hmm. times the physician would say, well, they didn't tell me that. And, you know, as PT and OT, you feel like patients just open up to you so much and they tell you things. And I think we're kind of fine-tuned to ask those questions a little bit more. I think as therapists, we have the luxury of a little more time with our patients than the physicians do. Um, So knowing what questions that the doctor may not ask that can get to. Absolutely. The way that the clinic is run now, because of the challenges with COVID, it did move to a virtual format. So much the same, but, but virtual going in and out of, you know, Zoom rooms and different things like that. As people have gotten vaccinated and as people have felt more comfortable coming out, we have really been pushing and pretty, pretty successful in getting these patients in at least in person for PT, OT, and speech. The rest of the services are staying virtual. So we do that on two separate days. But then, of course, we get back together again and we round on those people. And sometimes rounding isn't just everyone getting together. Sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes it's an email. Sometimes it's just a list of all the quick things. Hey, social work, we need this kind of help with that. Um, you know, nursing, did you know that they're having problems with incontinence and they're having trouble with self-cathing? So it's just reaching out to those people in particular that might be the ones who can be the most helpful for that. But the bottom line is it's communication and it, it doesn't matter how 
we communicate, but we've got to talk to each other because mm-hmm. like you said, if you are just a lone PT who's out there, it can be extremely daunting to take care of these patients. Mm-hmm. The level of deficit is so great from cognitive, from speech, from safety, from mobility, from just the stress of the care partners. It's, mm-hmm. it's overwhelming for them. So um, I know I'm blessed to have this team. It's a rarity. So it sounds like these are new valves. Do you ever see reoccurring patients in the clinic? Absolutely. And that is beautiful. That is the gift that we have. So when we evaluate the patients, we make the determination if they live close enough, they can come back and receive outpatient services with us. A lot of them, like I said, are traveling a great distance to come into Center City. So Mm -hmm. we try to help them locate the best team out in their community. We have a great relationship with local therapists in town and people outside of there. We have some people really need home care way more Mm -hmm. than use outpatient. It's just too challenging for them. So getting in touch with the home care agencies as well. And then we have some people who you know, it's, it's once and done and we never see them again, unfortunately. And, and I think that's, that's something you find in all settings where people sort of, you know, it's just too much and it's too overwhelming for them. We're very lucky though, that since the doctors we work with are part of this movement disorder center, and it's a center of excellence through the Parkinson's foundation, they're getting the, most of these patients who are coming in are patients of our physicians. We mm-hmm. probably, I would say maybe 10 to 20% of these patients come from outside physicians. Okay. So you, you can access information about the patients before the initial visit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if it, if it's an outside patient who comes from a different health system, our social worker or our nurse specialist has already done a pretty comprehensive phone call with them and found mm-hmm. out about their past medical history and the things um, to make sure that they're going to be a good fit for the clinic and really could benefit from all the services. Mm-hmm. One thing I just want to kind of clarify was that home care referral, because I think for me, optimizing that pathway from the outpatient setting into home care, where people can be resistant, you know, to not leaving their house, they want to get out and they want to see us, especially after you've established that relationship for so long. So how have you guys vetted or helped develop kind of these local home care resources, particular to atypical Parkinson's? Because as we know, it's, there's such unique features and symptoms that, that need to be managed in the home space. So we're very lucky at Penn that we have our own home care team called Penn Care at Home. And what we've done is establish really a, a strong relationship with that team. And we've done several in-services and continuing education with those therapists who are going to be seeing those patients. We also, every single one of us on the team hands the patient our card and says, please, whoever is working with you, if they have any questions about anything with regard to your diagnosis, we understand that they may not have seen as many people with this as we have, have them email us. We are happy to talk to them at any time. And we've also really tried to work with local agencies that do outpatient part B in the home. And that's been fantastic as well. And same thing, we just do, it's continuing education. It's it's pointing people to really good websites that have great information like Cure PSP or the MSA Coalition or the Lewy Body Disease Association. And just letting therapists know, you know, it would be like when we first started, I didn't know much about Huntington's disease at all. And, and Adriana Carey, who was a former therapist with us, she really took that bull by the horns and she learned about it and she fell in love with it. And when she left, 
it was time for us to learn about that. So we just keep sharing the knowledge. So just like when I didn't know about HD, it was time for me to learn about it. And, you know, we hope for the same thing. If there are therapists in the community who don't know, we are happy to talk with them about it. So I think one of the things our listeners probably will want to know is a little bit more about the physical therapy role on the team. Mm -hmm. Because again, a lot of us are alone and a lot of us have an interest in supporting this patient population. So tell me a little bit more about your approach with that initial evaluation and then what your treatment approach is over time in terms of kind of where your focus is. So that initial evaluation, I would say half of it is a lot of talking. We ask a lot of questions. We are talking about home safety. We are talking about who is with that patient. One of the biggest questions that we spend a lot of time on is what do you understand about this disease process? Because sometimes patients come to us from another clinic and their diagnosis might be Parkinsonism, and they incorrectly think that they have Parkinson's disease. So there's a lot of education as to, you know, what does this disease entail? What can we do to help you with this? There's a, unfortunately, a high component of cognitive change in these folks as well. Um, And a lot of problems with insight into understanding their own deficits. So that's where that role of asking the care partner, trying to find out, you know, what do they understand about what their spouse or loved one understands about that. So I think before we even put our hands on the patient, we really do try to get a handle on what's a daily life like for that patient. How much time are you spending at home alone? How active are you? Does spouse work? You know, what's going on from, you know, from the moment you get up, that time you go to bed. And then I think from that and the questions that that both myself, the physical therapist, and then also our occupational therapists ask, that leads us to look at kind of what are our core set of outcome measurement tools. And again, mm-hmm. you're always going to go back to, you know, we've got wonderful th- things through um, the Neuroacademy, through the APTA. There are great resources that are out there for therapists to look at. But again, you want to look at what do I have within the time that I have with this patient and what's going to help me to help this patient function at their best. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking at gate speed. I'm looking at five times sit to stand, um, always doing the tug times three, because that's going to give me some really good insight on that cognitive ability and that dual tasking ability. Um, And then from there, just uh, using my eyes to really look at that patient and get an assessment of what that gate pattern looks like. We look at floor to stand transfer with all of these patients because there is not one of them who has not had a fall unless we're getting someone who is very, very early in the diagnosis. And even Mm -hmm. at that point, Katie, they probably already had lots of falls because that's what led them to the diagnosis and led Mm -hmm. them to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would really tell your listeners, you know, even if your patient said, oh, I'm not really having falls, they probably are. And you probably should assess floor to stand. We also ask our patients a lot about near misses. You know, how often are you almost falling? How often are you catching yourself? Those kinds of things. So we're really looking at the functionality of the patient first and foremost, because if that patient doesn't live close to us and can't return for therapy, we want to talk to them about what are the common issues that they're going to see and what they're going to need to talk to that therapist about. One of the things with um, patients with progressive supranuclear palsy is that lack of insight first of all, into their deficits, but they have a lot of impulsivity. So they tend to just jump out of their chairs. They tend to walk very quickly. They have lots of falls backwards. And if it's okay, I'll tell you just a quick story about a patient who recently came to us with PSP, um, pretty severe. I mean, we're talking 20 falls a day. 
And unfortunately, she had absolutely no insight into this. When I said to her, you know, why don't you rate your balance for me? Zero, I have no confidence in my balance. 100, I feel great. And she said, of course, 100, I'm fine. And her husband, you know, looked at her like she had three heads. Now, unfortunately, she had been to a, a therapy place that didn't understand this disease, was continually trying new balance mechanism, putting her in a balance wear vest, trying all sorts of different vestibular things, trying all different kinds of devices. The truth of the matter was, unfortunately, at that point in her disease process, she needed 24-hour supervision. There was mm-hmm. no amount of exercise or you know, devices that we could do. And that's where I think the learning about palliative care really came in helpful for us to understand that there is only so much we can do at a certain point with these folks. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a gift, but it's also a burden to be able to share that with these patients because you always want to provide hope. And as therapists, we always want to be able to make people better, but sometimes we can only maybe prevent them from getting worse. And sometimes that's the best we can do. And I think that honesty and openness with the patient is going to be something that's just absolutely critical with this population. Yeah, I think early on, as you're getting to know patients, is it's hard to have those honest, direct conversations because from your from your perspective, your clinic, the way it's set up, you have some sense of the information that you've gotten that day, the information they've received. You know they have the intellectual support so that they can process it in yeah. so many different ways from perspectives. Um, but again, I'm just thinking of the lone PT or the lone yeah. OT. I'd love to hear from you about how other therapists who haven't been trained in palliative care or around other colleagues who have these conversations so frequently, you know, how is it that you guys are so honest and direct from the beginning? You know, what are the points that you're trying to get through? And then how do you also maintain that rapport so that you don't look like you're telling them nothing, nothing's going to work. The doctors are telling me there's no cure. There's nothing we can do. Um, And so then you're couched with, well, how do you, well, that's your jumping off point to come in and describe PT. Absolutely. And you come in sort of as like, okay, am I set up for failure here? Because the doctor's already said there's no cure. And what I tend to tell these folks who have the atypicals is I say to them, you know, we don't have a cure for Parkinson's disease either, right? It's not that you are alone in this. We don't have a cure for any of these diseases. So I try to open up with letting them know that just because the doctor says there's no cure, there's still management. And I will use the phrase, we are chapters in the book on your lifespan with this disease process. And right now we're in chapter one and we're doing this. And when chapter two comes and you come back to me, this is how we're going to handle things. And when chapter three comes, we're going to do that. I don't like to set up false hope in my patients, but I don't like to take the hope away from them, right? So that's that's something that I... I can only honestly say, Katie, that that came through years of practice and getting more and more comfortable in talking to people. And mm-hmm. I, I will say that the majority of people are really thankful and grateful for that because they get the sense that you care about them, you understand about their disease process. You know, and if I had someone who had some other sort of disease that I knew nothing about, and I've been in this situation several times in my career, I say, you know what, I don't know much about your disease process but I'm going to find someone who does. I'm going to read about this. I'm going to go onto this website. I'm going to talk to your neurologist. So I think it's it's important for that PT who might be a solo person in the clinic to also admit to them, this is my knowledge base. 
but I have people I can talk to. I'm going to talk to your neurologist. I'm going to talk to whoever I can to find that help for you. I just say, keep trying, keep trying, be who that person needs you to be in that moment. And honesty Mm -hmm. is always the best way to go. And there's always Mm -hmm. ways to manage. You know, we try to tell people all the time, just because you don't have the ability to walk now doesn't mean that you can't be mobile. Why we can't do wheelchairs, why we can't do scooters. There's always the next way to go until we really get into those late stages. And that's where really that palliative care, sometimes more it's jumping into hospice at that point. But, you know, letting people know just because it can't quote unquote cure you, I can still help guide you through this process. And the bottom line is, These atypical Parkinsonisms need more help in the home. And that's very hard for people who don't have family members, who can't afford home health care. And there's so many obstacles that are out there. So I don't have an easy answer for that. We, We cry a lot at work. We do about people who we worry about and what's going to happen to them because we don't know that they're going to get the care and support that they need at home. And, you know. From a functional perspective, how do you help patients manage their expectations about the disease progression Mm -hmm. in terms of losing the ability to safely walk by themselves, you know, accepting help from caregivers, you know, and then ultimately the need for either a power or manual wheelchair. If we're fortunate enough and to get to these people earlier in the diagnosis, and we really set them up for success with getting them on a good program. So there's a lot of a component of teaching those care partners The care partners have to be honest with us when they see the changes too, because like I said, some of these people really don't have the insight and they don't see it within themselves. And that's why you really, if you are a PT out there alone, when your patient is discharged, you can't just leave them. You need to make sure they come back in three months to six months for another evaluation because this disease process will progress faster, much faster than people Mm -hmm. with Parkinson's disease. So again, I I go back to the, the chapters in the book and I let them know. Things are going to get harder, but we're going to do exactly what we can at this point to keep you as safe as possible. If things change, if you start getting injured, if you start falling more, if there are more and more problems at home with just your ability to function, then we have to go to the next level. Think about this device. I won't tell you there's a magic pill for getting anyone to use an assisted device. No one says, yes, give me that walker. Everybody says, I don't want to depend on the device, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody wants it. You know, the best trick that I have is I I wear glasses um, and I often say to my patients, you know, despite how hard I work and how much I wish that my eyes would get better and I'm practicing whatever I can, I can't make my eyesight better. My glasses Mm -hmm. help my eyesight to be better. This is what I'm asking of you to use this device to be the best that you can be. Now, I wish that were a magic pill and everyone accepted it. Do I have patients who chronically fall and we've had to have helmets and knee pads and hip pads and elbow pads. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're the one introducing those to the patients and family members, yes. those, the idea of these resources. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. As well as OT and speech. I mean, I think we all kind of speak the same language when it comes to that. And, and I will say, I think it's important for PTs again, to educate your doctors and nurses about their role. You know, it's not okay for them to just be giving out walkers willy nilly talk to them, educate, give a good in-service on what a rollator is versus a weighted walker versus the U-step. You know, doctors love to just write a script for a walker. And then you see this person come in with a two-wheeled aluminum walker. You think, I can't believe we wasted their Medicare dollars on this. So Mm -hmm. be proactive. I mean, say, hey, I'd love to talk to you. 
I'd love to send you some information or talk to you for 10 to 15 minutes about devices that are out there and let you know, you know, I'm the person you can trust with, with giving that information out. Cause we've had, we've had our fair share of bad walkers and I've, you know, you have to say, uh, sorry, doc, wrong one. <laughs> yeah. This one is not going to help them. It's going to get in the way. I always say they turn into bad dance partners. I'm like, I like that. You can't two step. Yeah. I'm like, we have to think about something new. Right. So patients that you see in your clinic, how long are you guys managing them in your outpatient for treatment before you find that they need that home care referral? Mm. That's a loaded question. I will tell you, they stay with us through the course of their disease process. I will tell you that through the clinic. Yeah. So they're in the clinic, but they don't necessarily see you for treatment. Correct. So they will come back every six months. So even if they are not seeing us for regular therapy, once every six months, we are seeing them for the evaluation. Now you might say, well, that's nice, Heather, but if they're already getting home care, how are they seeing you? You can't double dip. And the only way that that happens, Katie, is we have a grant. Um, It's called the Harrison Grant, and it's funded through some special projects that the hospital has. And we're able to use that money to offset the course of what we would be able to bill for services. The big reasons why we'll have people move into home care is um, what's happening in outpatient therapy is not translating into betterment in the home. They need to be trained in their own home environment. They need the repetition of their couch, their toilet, Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. garage, all those kinds of things. That's probably the number one thing. Um, The second one is probably just the challenge of the difficulty of getting that patient out of the home, you know, miles down the road and then getting them into the center here. So when it becomes a burden for that care partner, that's another great time to move to home care. So I would say from, from my part, not, I don't see my role as kind of that longer term right. uh, management. So I think that's another unique piece when you kind of are doing it by yourself, you kind of want to hold on to it, want to keep helping them and kind of seeing them through, but really understanding and helping them see that, that they're better served um, and making that transition and having the hard conversation because they're going to see it as negative, like, oh, it's something I can't do anymore but I like what you're saying that it's the next chapter. Correct. Um, it's just the kind of continuation. So the other thing I want to make sure we cover is any other kind of resources specific for physical therapists. Um, I know you had mentioned the Cure PSP website, which is amazing. There's things out there that are good from an educational perspective, but are there other resources, including these that you lean on, or you regularly recommend for patients or physical therapists? Other physical therapists in the field. So we regularly reach out to therapists who are also at other uh, movement disorder centers. So really leaning on the people who are out there doing it. There are some great educational courses that are out there through physicaltherapy.com and MedBridge. I think also really, we had mentioned Cure PSP before, but they put on, you know, don't think of education just in terms of physical therapy education. Get yourself to these patient family conferences. You will learn a lot more, I think, sometimes about the insight these disease processes. Get yourself to a support group, those kinds of things. You really, I think when I first started, that was probably the best piece of advice somebody gave me because it really let me see from the bottom up what people were dealing with. Um, But those, the, the organizations that I mentioned, probably the three biggest, the Lewy Body Dementia Association, uh, the um, MSA Coalition, and then of course Cure PSP. You can always mm-hmm. go on to, 
you know, the Mayo Clinic has some great resources. You can look at um, Nord also has some things that are out there. And sometimes uh, good old Mr. Google, you just type it in and you never know what comes up. Um, I also, you know, I, I don't tell my patients to frequently do this, but I will search on Facebook for groups that are out there. And sometimes you can find some good information. A lot of times for patients, it's not good information. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's better for the therapist to be the one um, to kind of see what's out there. But I would say, you know, rely on the big organizations that are out there. Of course, the Parkinson Foundation um, does a lot of great education, not only in Parkinson's disease, but also in the atypical. So if you're ever feeling really lost and have nowhere to go, that's a great place to start. And how would you direct, you know, a physical therapist listening who wants to start some aspect of this in their PT clinic? You know, our clinic, our doors are open. We would be happy to talk to therapists if they want to email us because honestly, there's there's so few of these centers who have this ability to have this team. And it's a lot of therapists, like you said, like you, they're out there and you're seeing lots of these folks. And sometimes you can feel like an island all by yourself. Um, And then there's always, you know, reach out to your local neurologist who's a movement disorder specialist and say, hey, you know what, I, you're sending me some of these patients, I want to learn more about this. And I want to really provide care. Is there anything we can do to kind of talk together to do this? And the bottom line is this, Katie, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. They are a human being with functional needs. And if you strip everything away, and you look at the fundamentals of, can you get out of a chair? Can you dress yourself? How do you walk? How do you get up from the floor? If you look at those basic components, you're still going to be helpful to that patient without even knowing the ins and outs. Mm -hmm. And no matter who they are with what disease they have, there has to be some level of fitness and activity. So promoting that there's no magic exercise for these atypicals. So just helping people to have a good, healthy fitness um, regimen is going to be wonderful for them. Well, Heather, this has been so helpful and informative, and it's fun to kind of deep dive into your world. So it's great that you've offered to be kind of a continued resource for our listeners. We'll make sure that your contact information is in our show notes. That'd be great. So one of the more fun questions we like to ask is what you like to do personally when you're not busy trying to fill all these roles in a 40-hour week. What do you like to do for fun? Well, I have two teenage boys. I have an almost 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. So trying to manage their lives can be fun or not fun. Um, It's fun to have these little little men all of a sudden who are my toddlers (laughs) to have conversations with them and to, you know, share music and talk about books and life and politics. So that's fun. Um, One of my real passions is history. And um, living in the Philadelphia area, we are steeped in history Um, So going to the museums, um, one of the really strange things, and I will admit that it is strange and I'm surprised I'm sharing it here, but I do have a love of touring old cemeteries. Hmm. We have an absolutely amazing cemetery here in Philadelphia called Laurel Hill Cemetery. Um, It's actually on the historical sites. Um, You can learn a lot from cemeteries about history, about um, just thinking back to the Spanish flu of 1919 and the amount of people here in Philadelphia that actually passed, mm-hmm. they did great mm-hmm. historical tours about that. So um, I would say probably that's one of my my big loves. Oh, great. I used to live in Boston and there were a lot of very interesting graveyards and coming up onto the fall season, right? You could do all your spooky tours and absolutely. look for the ghosts in the graveyard. So absolutely. It's fun to live in a city that's so historical with all these kind of nooks and crannies you don't even know about. Exactly. 
Well, Heather, thanks again for spending time with us. I'm sure all of our listeners are going to be able to take away a few things to help them as they approach their care for patients with atypical Parkinson's. Well, thank you so much. I hope this was helpful. And like I said, communicate, ask questions. And if you need us, we're here for you. So reach out. Happy to always help. Great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guest today, Heather Cianci. This podcast was produced and edited by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Cassie Burris, and Parm Paget. And I am Katie McGraw. Subscribe to our newsletter on the AMPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode today with a colleague. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Say hello. Can I give you one parenting tip? Record their voices because when they're 16 and 13, the voices are, no one tells you this. Woohoo. Hey, virtual land, it's much easier, right? I'm looking at my Wi Fi, it looks good, but that doesn't mean it's not me. Hang on. Delphia. Okay. I'm like, I'm planet Earth in the Milky Way, like, <laughs> just in case. There's the dog in the background. What's he doing? He's just going to sit there and look at us. They call them codes now, like Code Katie. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.